The following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Well, in this session, we are in Revelation chapter 1, starting with verse 9. Uh, John has now got through his introduction. He's introduced himself and he's introduced his churches. He set the scene, and now we have in verse 9, really the first of uh, what will be many visions in Revelation, and this one specifically, a vision of Jesus. So Revelation 1 verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, Write on a scroll what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I'm alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore what you have seen, both what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches." Well, in 2002, uh, soon after the U.S. invaded Iraq in the aftermath of 9-11, an article appeared in a German magazine called Der Spiegel, which is one of Germany's uh, premier current events magazines. And this magazine carried a feature story on the U.S. war in Iraq, and on the cover to accompany this feature story was a, was a picture of President Bush and his team. And the president and his team were all dressed in the attire of American superheroes. So President Bush was literally dressed as Rambo, carrying this massive machine gun. And uh, Dick Cheney was uh, Conan the Barbarian. Colin Powell was Batman. Uh, Condoleezza Rice was Xena the Warrior Princess, and on it goes. They were all dressed as these figures from American pop culture. And subtly, whatever you think of the war in Iraq, subtly what this magazine had done is put its own view forward in the form of a picture, without having to say a word before they had written a word. On the cover of Der Spiegel, this magazine had created a certain impression of how they saw Bush and how they saw this war in Iraq. They were basically portraying them in the story of the American superhero, like Captain America, who vanquishes evil, who campaigns and crusades on the side of good and justice, who defends America, fights against America's enemies, and saves America and the world from certain destruction. They basically overlaid that story onto the story of the American war in Iraq 
in order to give a particular interpretation to how those events were playing out. Pictures can do this. The old saying, pictures are worth a thousand words, is so true. With one graphic depiction, you can tell a whole story. You can give an entire set of events. And this is exactly what John is doing here. By giving us this picture, and it is a picture of Jesus, this artistic uh, impersonation of Jesus, John is telling us a lot about who Jesus is. Jesus himself, as he appears to John in this way, through what he's wearing, through, through what he's holding, through what's around him. Jesus is wanting John, is wanting John's readers to understand him in a certain way, to see certain things that will give them associations with the person and the work of Jesus. And John, in turn, is then nudging his reader and saying, this is what I want you to understand about who Jesus is. Look at him, see this piece of, of, of artwork, in a sense, around Jesus, and from there, understand who he is to you and in your communities. So really, as you look at this passage, it's like looking at a piece of art in an art gallery. The purpose is not so much to dissect it like a cadaver. The purpose is to appreciate it and to marvel at it and to be transformed by it, to be transformed by the one that this passage depicts. And so let's look a little bit closer at this. Notice the first thing that John sees or the first thing that he says about Jesus. He turns around, he sees this voice, and when he turns around, he sees someone like a son of man. He doesn't actually say Jesus. We know it's Jesus from what happens later on, but John just describes him as a son of man. Now, in one sense, that just means a human being. A son of man is basically a, a human being like you or me. But in the Old Testament, the phrase son of man had a huge significance beyond just saying human being, particularly in Daniel 7. Daniel has this vision which involves a son of man. He says, I saw one like a son of man, like a human being, coming before, coming into the presence of the Ancient of Days, who is God the Father. And the Son of Man figure receives from God all authority to establish God's kingdom upon the earth. So God appoints, God anoints the Son of Man to be His divine ruler, His divine king, set up a kingdom that is without end, and all other kingdoms will bow in submission to this one true king and His one true kingdom. That's the, that's the significance of what the Son of Man does in Daniel 7. So when John's readers hear this, that John has seen one who looks like a son of man, they immediately would have think, he's talking about Daniel 7. This is the Son of Man that Daniel was speaking about, and John has seen him, and John's identifying him now with Jesus. He's saying Jesus is that one who has is, who is received from God all authority. He's received from God all power, and he's received the ability now to establish God's kingdom upon the earth. Jesus is the only one who has the authority to do that, to set up and to inaugurate the kingdom of God on earth. So he is the world's true king. That's what's being said. Jesus is the one true rightful king, not just king of your heart, not just king of my heart, not just king in this micro sense. He's the world's true king. He's the one Lord, ruler, Kurios, Lord of the whole earth. Now this is reinforced by this image here that Jesus has these seven stars, seven stars around him. and In his right hand, he holds seven stars. Now, later on in the chapter, Jesus himself identifies those seven stars as the seven angels of the seven churches. But there's a bit more significance to the stars than that. The reigning emperor at the time that Revelation was written 
was Emperor Domitian. And Domitian had a son, and his son died. We don't know exactly how old he was when he died. It's quite possible that he died in infancy as a child. And when Domitian's son died, Domitian minted a set of coins that were circulated throughout the Roman Empire that had a picture of his son on them. And this was not just a way of remembering and memorializing his son. It was a way of deifying his son, turning him effectively into a god, claiming that he was now uh, in death divine. And so these coins depicted Domitian's son as a boy sitting above a globe, sitting above the world and holding in his hand seven stars. It's entirely possible that when John wrote Revelation, he was sitting there with one of these coins in his hand. One of these coins from Emperor Domitian with with Domitian's son holding these seven stars, claiming divinity for his son. And John is saying, divinity rests in the hand of Jesus alone. Jesus alone is the world's true king. Jesus is the one who holds the cosmos in his hand, not Domitian or his son. No other emperor, no other king, no other lord, no other general, no other commander has this power and authority that Jesus has. Jesus is on the throne. He's the one holding the world in his hands. He's the one holding your life in his hands. He's the one holding your world in his hands, no matter how chaotic it feels, no matter how stressful it feels. Jesus is holding your world, the world, in his hands, and he's not letting go. He's the world's true king. Now, notice something else about this vision in Revelation 1. Look at what Jesus is wearing. He's dressed, this is verse 13, he's dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. Now, this doesn't seem like particularly manly attire, does it? This is, uh, what is he doing here? Entering a beauty pageant? What's going on? Well, the robe and the sash go right back to the book of Exodus, and they resemble the clothing that God commanded the high priests to wear, Aaron and his son. They had this robe and they had a sash. The only difference is that Aaron's sash had several colors to it, including gold, whereas Jesus' uh, sash is just pure gold. Probably represents the fact that he has this indestructible priesthood. But either way, what's being said is that Jesus is the one true high priest. He's wearing the clothing of the priest. He is the true high priest. And the role of the priest was to mediate between God and humanity to stand in the gap, as it were, between a holy God and a sinful humanity, to mediate between the two, to represent the presence of God to his people, to represent the presence of people to God. And, and, and Jesus, therefore, is, is our mediator before the Father. He's atoned for our sin. He's borne our sin upon himself so that he can now bring us to God. He can now bring us right into the presence of the Holy One. And he reflects and represents the presence of God to us in our lives. He is God with us. And you see this because look where Jesus is when John says this. He turns around and he sees seven golden lampstands. These represent the seven churches that that, that John is writing to. And the Son of Man figure, Jesus, is among these lampstands. Now the lampstand was part of the temple accessories. When the priest went into the temple, the first thing he'd do is light one of the lampstands so that he could see what he was doing. The the lampstand was just always there, and he would put oil in the lamp so that it would continually burn as long as he was there in the temple. And John is just bringing this all together in a beautiful way. He's saying Jesus now is the true high priest. He goes into the temple of God, 
and he's among these lampstands which represent the churches and he's pouring the oil of his own spirit, the oil of his own presence into the lampstands of the churches in order to keep us burning and to keep us alive with the spirit of God. It's a great image of Jesus being present with his church, empowering his church for its mission, for our mission, our ministry, our proclamation in word and deed. In the world, Jesus is among the churches. That's where we find him in Revelation. Not off in some other place. He's right there among the churches. Jesus loves the church. Jesus died for the church. Jesus is absolutely and passionately committed to the church. Many people today say, I've given up on the church. I've got no time for the church. I've been burned by the church. It's been bad teaching. I'm, I'm sick of the church. I'm sick of institutional church. I'm sick of conventional church. Give me Jesus, but leave the church aside. Jesus loves the church and you can't truly be a follower of jesus if you don't love what jesus loves and jesus loves the church yes the church is broken yes the church is often weakened and the church is far less than it should be every church is like that because it's full of broken people but jesus still loves the church and so should we jesus laid down his life for the bride of Christ, the church. And now he is among his church, working with his church, empowering his church by the Spirit. So shouldn't we give the best of ourselves to our church? Shouldn't we be passionately committed to the work and the ministry and the, and the strengthening of the church that God has placed us in? Shouldn't we do all we can to find a healthy church and invest what's left of the rest of our lives in helping that church be all it can be. Because that means loving what Jesus loves. And Jesus loves the church. He's the high priest. And we find him right there among the lampstands. With his people among the churches. Notice one final image from this vision of Jesus in Revelation 1. And I've saved it to last because it's the least comfortable of all these images look at jesus eyes his eyes were like blazing fire verse 14 again at the end of revelation we find jesus with these eyes of blazing fire in the context of judgment it's the idea that jesus can see right through you he can see into your soul he can see all the thoughts all the motives all the attitudes all the opinions of your heart Jesus has these eyes of blazing fire with which he sees and discerns the attitudes and actions of every single person. We're, we're brilliant pretenders. And we can put up a mask and we can come to church and we can sing the songs and we can listen to the sermons and we can quote the Bible verses and we can go to the life groups and we can get baptized and we can be good Christians. But Jesus sees right through you. Jesus sees right into your heart. And I don't say this in a condemning way. I don't say this... To, to, to heap on any kind of guilt and shame. I just say it because this is who Jesus is. He can see into your heart. He knows you. He knows where you are and he knows what's going through your mind and your heart right now. There is just no point hiding it. The person next to you may have no idea, but Jesus sees right through you. He sees into your soul. And I don't know what, what response you have to that. I don't know how that makes you feel. For me, it makes me feel undone completely exposed, which, which I am in the presence of Jesus, completely vulnerable because he sees into my soul the deepest thoughts, the stuff that I don't really want anyone else to see. Jesus sees it. He knows it. He's aware of it. But that throws me back on the previous image of Jesus as my high priest. 
That's why these images have to go together. You can't just have Jesus as the judge without Jesus as the high priest. Jesus sees right through us, yes. He sees the good as well as the bad, yes. But at the same time, he comes alongside us then as our high priest with the robe and the sash, ministering to us and saying, let me give you more grace. Let me extend again my mercies. Let me show you the tenderness of my love and let me help to purify and to cleanse your heart. This is who Jesus is. He is at once judge and high priest and king. They all go together. But let's push, push this image of the judge just a little bit further. Look at this most disturbing part of the vision. In verse 16, coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. Well, this is difficult, isn't it? This idea of Jesus having a sword coming out of his mouth. And again, later in Revelation, we see the same thing. Jesus is pictured with the eyes of blazing fire and the sword coming out of his mouth. And there's no question that this is an image of judgment. That this is Jesus in his role as a judge. Now notice, though, where the sword is coming from. It's not in Jesus' hand. Isn't that interesting? You would expect normally, you know, with, 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 a, with a warrior, with a soldier, they would be holding the sword in their hand. Jesus is not. He never, in Revelation, holds the sword in his hand. He has the sword coming out of his mouth. And that's a critical point of distinction. See, the way of Rome, the way of the empire of Rome, was the way of the sword held in the hand. It was the way of brute force. It was the way of violence. It was the way of manipulation and coercion, bullying and co-opting people for the agenda of the empire. Jesus is never like that. Jesus' purpose is not to judge in the way of brutality and violence and bullying, just beating up everybody who doesn't agree with him. Jesus' means of judgment and Jesus' means of conquest is the sword coming out of his mouth. In other words, it's connected to his word, his powerful word. It's connected, the word in Revelation is witness. Jesus is the true and faithful witness. That's the significance. The sword is this figurative expression of the power of Jesus' witness. And that's not just literally his words that he says. It's also the deeds that he does. And I'd suggest that witness, that powerful witness of Jesus is seen most vividly on the cross. It's there we see the ultimate demonstration of Jesus' witness his faithfulness, his absolute submission to the Father, his willingness to lay his life down in faithful obedience to the calling he's received. That's, Je that's the ultimate witness of Jesus, word and deed. It all comes together on the cross. In a sense, you could think of the cross as Jesus' sword. It's a paradox there, isn't there? Because the cross is a mechanism of, of defeat and execution. But at the same time, in the hands of Jesus, the cross is a sword because it is the power with which he conquers sin and death with which he judges, with which he brings a God's new world to bear. The cross is Jesus' sword by which he defeats the one who holds the power of death. And that's why later in Revelation 1, he can say, now I hold the keys to death and Hades. He's stolen them off the strong man. He's stolen them off Satan. And he did it from a Roman cross. He did it from this position of incredible weakness. But that's the sword. That's the way Jesus works. And even when Jesus comes again, even when Jesus returns to earth to judge, it's not that he's going to be a categorically different person than he was when he came the first time. Sometimes we think, well, Jesus came in weakness uh, the first time. Now, in the second time, he's going to come as this cosmic bully. He's going to sort of beat everybody up. 
But Jesus will still come with the sword out of his mouth. His powerful word, his powerful witness will still be in the new creation at the final judgment. It will be the means of his judging. That means if you're not a follower of Jesus and you find yourself face to face with him on the day of judgment, his death, his powerful witness, it will be absolutely devastating to you because you will realize what Jesus has done for you and how you have missed that incredible opportunity to embrace the life that he made possible. In that sense, it will be a sword that pierces your heart. You will look on the one that you have crucified in a sense and mourn because Jesus has done this incredible thing for you and you've not received it and you've not embraced it. That's the sense in which the word, the witness of Jesus is a sword. The death of Jesus will be that dividing line. But if you don't know him, it will be the one thing that is devastating and destroying because it's life for those who choose it and who embrace him. But it's death and it's alienation and it's separation for those who consistently shun that offer of renewal and new life from the one who died for you. So as we think about these three images that all come together in this one vision, John sees, after all, it's not three different visions, but one. But three things come out of here, and I wonder as we finish this morning, which of these this morning God wants to press on your heart? These visions in Revelation can be like sensory overload. There's so much in them. There's so many parts to them, so many layers, so many different things you could focus on. But what is the one part of this vision of Jesus, the Son of Man, that God wants to really seal on your heart this morning? Is He wanting to show you Jesus as the King? Is He wanting you to see that Son of Man, the one who brings about the kingdom? Is He wanting you to focus on the, on the seven stars and show you that Jesus holds the universe, the cosmos, in His hands and holds your life in His hands. Perhaps you're going through incredible chaos this morning. Perhaps you're, you're absolutely stressed out, just completely maxed out, and you need to just soak in that image of Jesus. He holds the seven stars. He holds your life. He holds you firmly, and He's not letting go. Perhaps God wants to press on your heart this morning the image of Jesus as a priest. That high priest who is with you, who ushers you into the presence of God, a high priest who can empathize with your weaknesses and all your frailty, profound sense of weakness that you're carrying, to know that Jesus is there. He's dressed as that priest to come alongside you. And he's walking among his churches. Perhaps that's what God wants to say to you today, is to invest in the church, to love what Jesus loves, to love your local church, and to give the best of yourself to it. And perhaps today God wants to focus you on Jesus' eyes. He wants you to look into the eyes of Jesus and see those eyes of blazing fire and see Jesus just looking straight through you. Perhaps there is something in your life that God wants to convict you of. So easy to go through life and we never think about these things. You're so busy just working and dealing with the kids and sorting out the problems with a car and just living. Now we don't often take time to examine and allow God to examine what's deeply going on within us. But perhaps this morning God's looking into you. Jesus, is, those eyes of blazing fire are penetrating. He's saying, there's something I want you to see. There's something I want to work with you in transforming and changing. Allow him to do that. Don't push that voice away. Don't shun that and, and, and squeeze that out. Allow God to do his work within you. He's not doing it to judge you and condemn you. He's doing it to reform you and to change you 
and to transform you into the image of Jesus. And perhaps, uncomfortable as it may be, Jesus is wanting you to see the sword. He's wanting you to see that witness, that faithful witness that he has been through his word and deed. And he's wanting to say to you this morning, if you're not yet following the lamb, if you're not yet following the son of man, don't put it off another minute. There is life in Jesus. There is power in Jesus. There is renewal in him. There is eternal life in him. And that life is on offer today. If you don't know Jesus, if you're not yet in relationship with him, I encourage you, I invite you, I urge you, make today the day that you lean into that relationship, not away from it, but lean into it. Begin a conversation with Jesus. Begin turning your life towards him and find that he is an endless source of grace and peace and mercy and new life and new hope and refreshing for you as you journey with him through this life. Let's pray together. Jesus, we're captured by this vision of you as the Son of Man. We thank you that this picture in Revelation gives us new ways, fresh ways of seeing you and thinking about you. And I pray, Lord, for each of us, enable us to see the one part of this vision that you are wanting us to capture and be captured by. We thank you, Jesus, that you are the world's true king, that you are our true high priest, and you're also the world's true judge. We know that all of this is true, and in view of that and in response to that, we want to orientate our lives towards you, away from the empires and kingdoms of the world and the pull of our own selfishness, and center ourselves upon you and follow you completely and fully, even in the ordinariness of everyday life. So we thank you. We give our lives to you afresh. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shore.org.nz Alternatively, you can email office at shore.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.